Alrighty, as with the narration section, the apostle has a wake-up call, if you do recall, uh, where he kind of tosses water into the face, has a wake-up call um, in each of those sections, and here we've gone from the narration to what I call the education And uh, this is very theological. He is going to drag us from the shallow end where he's telling stories and explaining. Remember, he is the paradigm. Uh, We're not the paradigm. I come from a very topical preaching background to now I've come from that to where to an expository approach. When it's topical, or when you come from where I come from, you make yourself the paradigm. And when you come to the expository, you say, okay, what, who did God make the paradigm? <laughs> and uh, you begin to try to rely upon the Word of God. And so Paul's a paradigm. And so he's taking us, if you please, from the shallow end to the deep end. And he is now giving us a wake-up call in this education section. He is going to use questions. We've all used this method before. If we're parents, we particularly have done it. But we've done it with subordinates or whatever area of life. We've even done it with our equals. We begin to ask them questions. In these first six verses, he will do that. He'll begin to ask them questions. You know our favorite question. What? Were or are, let's go with are, what are you thinking? You took the neighbor's bike, you began riding it around town, what were you thinking? You grabbed my keys, you're 13 years old, you drove my car, you can't drive a car, you wrecked it. What were you thinking? Well, I didn't think I'd crash it. If Johnny jumped off the bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? What were you thinking? And so that's what Paul is doing in these first five or six verses. He's asking them a bunch of questions. What were you thinking? So if you look at chapter 3, verse number 1... Paul, remember, is using deliberative rhetoric, so it's an in-your-face style. He has no problem here talking to his converts and calling them foolish. You didn't do that with your kids, right? You didn't say, oh, foolish rugrats, because you didn't use deliberative rhetoric in your home. But none of us wants to be called fools, do we? particularly at the end of our lives. We don't want to die one day and face our maker and hear God say, you fool. Brother Allen has used the parable about uh, the guy who built more barns, said, look at all the goods I have. What, you fool, what were you thinking? None of us wants to be called a fool. And then he says here, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes 
that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is talking about what he did when he went to the province of Galatia in these churches. Who bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? Now, we're tempted to say that the Judaizers did that, but we know that the ultimate enemy is who? Satan's the ultimate enemy. And we know that from Paul's other writings, particularly Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil. So Satan wanted to steal the Galatians' faith in the necessity and sufficiency of the finished work of Christ. That is his sacrifice on the cross. And we must be reminded, unless we get bored of these lessons in the book of Galatians, that this work of Satan continues to this day. How many of us are familiar with the parable of the sower? Would you? Okay. Eight of us. Praise the Lord. You're taking uh, the advice of reading the scriptures. I see that, some of us. Jesus tells the story of a sower that went forth to sow, and he cast the seed out, the seed being the gospel, and the seed goes out, and some lands on the wayside, some lands um, uh, amongst the stony ground, and some lands in the, with the, uh, the thorns and thistles amongst the weeds, if you will, and then some lands on the, the fertile ground. And our hope and prayer is that each of us represents the fertile ground. That's our hearts. All of the ground represents our hearts. But then he later explains it to the apostles. And he says in Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. We never think of that great exchange, right? What a blessing it is for those of you who are part of that. Thank God for you folks. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Boy, we never hear those stories from when we witness. We don't even think about that, do we? This is what was sown along the path. Does that happen today? If I could quote Sarah Palin, you betcha. How does that happen today? Jehovah Witnesses? Yeah, they do that, don't they? They come knock on people's doors, don't they? You know Jesus isn't really divine, don't you? You don't think they're really out there talking to people that have no idea of the, that the Bible exists, do you? Who, think, who knows some other groups that are busy doing that today, snatching away that seed? Social media, Social media does that? The Mormons. the Mormons do that. Boy, they're big at that, aren't they? Any other groups? Hebrew Israelites. Hebrew Israelites. Boy, they all got good names, don't they? We witness for Jehovah. Mormons, Hebrew Israelites. Who else? How about the Unitarians? Boy, they do it. And they can raise some money doing it too, boy, don't they? Did you have one, Jace, a different one? No, I was saying, they don't knock on doors. No, they don't knock on doors. No, they don't. The parking lot. Yeah. Paid for. Yeah. How about the Worldwide Church of God? Anybody know who they are? Yeah. Armstrongism, that's right. Herbert W. Armstrong. I thought they were standing. No, they, uh, 
They are now called Grace Communion International. And they keep the Old Testament law. Yeah, they got a whole mess going on. Other cults. Did you have one? I was just thinking about colleges and humanism. Humanism, sure. Seven-day Adventist. Seven-day Adventist. B.B. Warfield, if you've never read his, uh, what was put into a pamphlet, it was actually a, uh, a series of uh, college uh, lessons he taught called Plan of Salvation. Boy, if you've never read that, now it's not a comic book, it's B.B. Warfield, but if you've never read his Plan of Salvation, my goodness, it is phenomenal. It's not long, and he, he gets into some stuff there, and you're going to have to take your time to go through it, but B.B. Warfield's Plan of Salvation is excellent. But he divides people starting out with naturalists, and supernaturalists. And these are all people looking for salvation. This is the group. He's not even talking about atheists in this group. Naturalists are people that he quotes, God has planned that they believe. God has planned that those shall be saved who in one way or another save themselves. These, of course, he uses the well-known theological term Pelagians, named after the heretic Pelagius. And then supernaturalists, all that come under there, believe that God, not man, saves the soul. And there's a whole lot of people under there. And you would not agree with all supernaturalists. We would not agree with all supernaturalists. He goes under there and begins to divide and continues to divide more and more and more. Fantastic, fantastic little book. Now, Paul goes on to say, it was before your eyes. Now, so here's the solution. If you don't want to be wit, be bewitched, notice what he says here. It was before your eyes. You see, the solution for us is to keep the cross before our eyes. Please hear me on that. There's the solution. Keep the cross before your eyes, not the law. Can I get an amen? amen. Not ethnicity. And we've seen that come up again, right? But this was a big deal that Paul was working through here uh, in his day. But the cross... Not politics, that won't do it, but the cross. By the way, young people, not fairness, but the cross. Not money, but the cross. Not the future. Boy, I'm an eschatological guy. I believe that what Paul is pointing out here is all eschatological, but eschatology can be mishandled as well. It is the cross that we must keep before our eyes. Not world events. Boy, they'll get you with that too. But Christ himself is what must be kept before your eyes. And Paul is defining here what he did. He said Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Clearly, this is what Paul meant when he wrote 1 Corinthians 2.2, where he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. He laid out the heart of the gospel openly before them. Now what? Had they forgotten it all? Now, here's what happens. Satan's crowd uses our human nature against us. The Judaizers put a price on things. They did not offer free grace. They offered rites and rituals and then summed it all up with circumcision as the price tag for a divine life. And don't forget, this was similar to what the paganism, the the paganism, the Galatians had come from. Stay with me. Human nature says 
if it costs something, it's worth something. We've all heard that, right? If it costs something, it's worth something. And by the way, this is even how elite military schools operate. You ever watched any of those things about elite military schools? Boy, we have a dropout rate of 66%. Now, I've been to one or two of those schools. I went to the easy ones. Trust me, don't get too excited that I did something. When they were hard, I said, well, I got something else to be doing here. The ones I went to, buddy, they'll kick people out for no reason whatsoever just to keep the numbers high so they can say, boy, it's hard to make it. They make it super exclusive. Why? So that in our human nature, there's this idea, boy, if this is hard to attain, I got to go after it. And that's what they use with the Galatians. They're like, you know what Paul's offering you? It can't be real. It's too simple. It's just too easy. And the cults do the exact same thing. Boy, if anybody could get it, it must not be anything to it. On the other hand, you have the free offer of grace. That's why the preaching of the cross, don't miss this, is meant to show the great cost, the great sacrifice, the great price that God paid through Christ Jesus himself for you and for I. But here's the catch. It is all grasped through faith. There are no handlebars. There's nothing to sink your teeth into. There's no sin offering to hold on to. There's no priest. There's no annual Passover celebration. There's no earthly temple to visit. There are no regular rituals, rites, or regulations. Watch it to make you feel good about what you do. And all of a sudden, the Judaizers show up and they're making these Galatians feel good about it. Paul's gone. He gave them the free offer of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They don't have any handlebars to this thing. That's what they're used to. They're used to their paganism. They're used to holding on to things. They're used to things that make them sort of feel good, this self-esteem kind of mess. Same thing going on around us today where people walk around in the church of Christ instead of looking at the beauty of God and His love and His mercy and they're talking about, well, do you love yourself enough? Or is everybody loving themselves? We're, we're all wonderful people. Let's love ourselves. They're more good than bad. And all of a sudden, we're worried more about our self-esteem than the greatness of our God who created the world and made us and foreloved us and foreknew us. And we've forgotten the cross again. And everybody's trying to give us handlebars. And what God wants to do is to work through faith to the saving of our souls and the building of His kingdom. It's an amazing theme. Someone mentioned it this morning. I think it was something when I heard Gerald say. It's an amazing theme running throughout Paul's writings. How that weak The weak in faith cling to the law. Over and over again throughout Paul's writings, the weak in faith are clinging to things. They want something to hold on to. But I implore you this morning, as Paul calls the Galatians foolish, says that someone cast a spell on them, I implore you to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Verse number two. 
Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Seems so simple, doesn't it? And when he says by the hearing of faith, what he's saying is by hearing the word and applying faith to it. He's being very straightforward. When I I preach the gospel to you, this is your salvation. This is your justification. How were you saved? Think with me now. How you were saved has implications on how you stay saved. How you were saved has implications on how you progress in your salvation. If you were saved by keeping the law, then you're sanctified by keeping the law. Right? If you were saved by faith apart from the law, then you're sanctified by faith apart from the law. Let's get a little more going on under here. So we are supernaturalists. We believe in imputation. We'll put impute. We believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay? What does that mean? We believe the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us when we are justified. In other words, by grace through faith. If you understand that, say amen. Amen. The, The righteousness of Christ was imputed to us. But that is not as common a belief as you might expect. Our Catholic neighbors believe in infused righteousness. They believe that the righteousness of of man and Christ are gradually infused. They believe you come to the church and you go through the different rituals, you're baptized, and these different things, slowly this righteousness is infused to you. And if you miss out on the final right at death, I'm forgetting all of a sudden what that's called. The last rites, thank you. It was pretty simple. <laughs> Leave it to me to forgive it. If you miss out on that, then you're not getting that last infusion. So guess where you got to go? You got to go to purgatory. Now, we believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ. So guess where we don't have to go? Purgatory, that's right. I appreciate that helpfulness there. You don't have to go to purgatory. By the way, we believe that because this is what Paul is telling us in the book of Galatians. Now, our Arminian friends, bless, bless their heart, they believe in imparted, I believe, yeah, imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness. What in the world does that mean? Well, they believe that righteousness is imputed and imparted at justification to enable them to strive for holiness and not lose salvation so they can hold out faithful to the end. Right? So now you got to hold out. Well, if you don't hold out faithful, you can lose it. And then, well, you're not going to purgatory. You're going... To the bad place. H-E double toothpick. So Paul is teaching us, hey, wait a minute. Here in verse number two, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law 
or by the hearing of faith. How did you receive it, church? By the hearing of faith. That's right. So by faith, Christ imputed his righteousness to you. He's not infusing it over time and he's not imparting righteousness so that you can slowly work your way to holiness and maybe mess up and go to the bad place. He's not infusing it so that you can hopefully be good enough to miss out on purgatory and hell. He imparted his righteousness to you. He gave you his blessed Holy Spirit by faith. Ladies and gentlemen, I think the problem is we forget the miracle of being a rebel and being transformed into a child of God. Do you forget the fact that you were a rebel? We have to remember that we were aliens with no desire for God, but that the Spirit of God placed in us that desire for God. You're not, you weren't such a hot mess. Uh, well, hot mess means a bad thing. Now, when I was a kid, hot mess meant a good thing. Did you know that? Yeah. At least that's what I told myself when people <laughs> called me that. We simply cannot forget that had God not sought us out, we would never had turned to Christ. Had God not sought me out, I would not be standing here at this moment exalting the riches of Christ Jesus. I would be off somewhere in a ditch, ladies and gentlemen, spiritually at least. It is because of a miracle that Christ sent His Spirit to haul me into the kingdom of God. The Galatians at Lystra were the ones in Acts 14. Listen to what they did when Paul and Barnabas showed up. Here's what they said. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. This is the kind of people they were. They wanted to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And they began to rip their clothes and, hey, we're just men like you are. These are the people that Paul is talking to saying, wait, have you forgotten who you were? Was it some ritual, some legalistic ritual that got you to turn to Christ? That put the Spirit of God inside of you? Have you forgotten? Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten what we were? In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul reminds us the Corinthians were just carried away with dumb idols. To the Thessalonians, we're told they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. What did you turn from? Oh, I know. That's right. You were Miss Goody Two-Shoes, weren't you? You only watched black and white movies. You only drank Coca-Cola on the weekends. You wouldn't even eat white sugar. Huh? You were so sweet and wonderful. Oh, your thoughts were crystal and pure. Am I right? Look at verse 3. Now this is 
This is where Paul gets us. We see their sanctification. Are you so what? Don't you like a preacher that likes calling you a fool? I didn't do it. Paul did it. Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Our tendency. Everybody raise your hand for me right now. Everybody, let me see. Let me see. Now go like this. Okay, this is our tendency. This is where we mess up. Okay. So get on the Tamara because she was out. Make sure you go like this, Tamara. Okay, that's right. <laughs> our tendency, our tendency is to rightly throw out justification by works of the law. None of us believe that anyway. Watch it, but we hold on to sanctification by the law. That's our tendency. Which is to waddle, watch this, which means we, are to, we like to waddle in the present evil age that Christ came to deliver us from, according to Galatians 1.4. So, here we are. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> that ain't us. Here we are. We believe in imputed righteousness. But we add one more word over here. Inject. We inject righteousness, legal righteousness, for our sanctification. How many of you read Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody remember reading Pilgrim's Progress? All right. (laughs) You didn't enjoy it, huh? (laughs) It is a tough read. That's why you get it on audio. And let it play while you're sleeping. Then you can say, I read it. In the book, there's an illustration on biblical purpose of the law, which God, gave the, which God gave to Israel as a covenant. There's a scene in Interpreter's House where the man with the broom, you remember the man with the broom? That's Moses and the law. He's stirring up the dust of sin in the human heart. And he labored, but guess what he couldn't do? He couldn't clean up that house. Then the damsel came in, that's the Holy Spirit, And what did she do? She sprinkled a little water on the floor. And that's the gospel. And she cleaned up that room with no trouble whatsoever. So far, so good, right? We're all in agreement. Cleaned it right up. Everybody's on board. However, once the room is cleaned out, a lot of Christians like to go put that broom right back into the hand of Moses and say, now... Keep on, keep, keep on, keep uh, cleaning the room. Keep it cleaned out from here forward. But that's not what Mr. Bunyan is saying. You see, the law cannot justify, but it also cannot sanctify. He's saying the law cannot conquer sin in the human heart, period. It cannot conquer sin before salvation, and it cannot conquer sin during salvation. The law can no more keep it than it can clean it. And that's what Paul is trying to tell these people. And that's where we struggle so often. How many times we're thinking, I'm just not good enough. You know what? Of course you're not good enough. That's why you came to Christ in the first place. 
So stop running back to the old covenant and saying, now what can make me good enough? Run to Jesus. That's what makes you good enough. Do you remember this phrase? In, what's the next part of it? I'm hoping you didn't forget it. If you're going to remember one phrase in all the scriptures, this is the one you got to remember. Verse number four. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Let's be honest. Nobody wants to suffer. How many of you like pain? I have a son that does. I kid you not. He cut his foot wide open. I said, son, what are we going to do about that? He said, dad, I hate Dr. Bills. I said, get on over here. Took a needle and thread and sewed him right up. His mama sat there crying and squealing the whole time. He sat there and said, don't hurt, don't hurt, don't hurt. It hurt. Trust me, it hurt. No one wants to suffer in vain. Paul told the Galatians in Acts 14, 22, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Pain is part of the game. In front of the Galatians, Paul was stoned and they thought he was dead. But was it in vain? Verse 5 and 6, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, notice these supernatural experiences. Now, of course, we don't live in the apostolic age. But God has not lost any power and he continues to work by faith and through faith, meaning we are in no less need of his providential care than any other generation of believers. Now, I want you to notice something that Paul continues to contrast here. He started this in verse number two. He will contrast law and faith. We're used to looking at Romans And we're used to seeing grace contrasted with what? You know. That's right, works. Told you you knew. But you'll see here and throughout chapters 3 and 4, he will contrast faith and law. He'll continue to contrast these things. Because he's making a point to a specific group of people. Then, in verse number 5, as I said, where we're at, he does it. Ultimately, the choice leads to this. Whether you will be disciplined by the Spirit or by the law. Who do you want to be disciplined by? The Spirit or by the law? Before you make up your mind... He'll get to chapter 5 and he'll say you'll be led by the Spirit or by the law. And I'll give you one more thing along this line of thinking, and this will help you make up your mind. He'll then tell you you'll be given life by the Spirit or death by the law. So you have a chance to make up your mind between faith and the law, but ultimately... When you make that choice, understand 
that one leads to life and one leads to death. Look at the portion there. I believe it's verse number six. Six. Sixth? Six. Just as Abraham believed God and was circumcised and kept the Sabbath and tithed on all his income and name some more things and didn't mix all his fabrics together. Take your shirt off real quick for me. Just kidding. I don't want to embarrass everybody. No, if I really want to embarrass everybody, I take mine off. But I was going to look at the I was going to look at the tag in the back and see how many different fabrics were were a part of your part of your shirt. They couldn't even mix the fabrics. It's the two sisters. Okay, I don't want to talk. I didn't want you to talk. I just wanted you to listen. <laughs> I asked the wrong guy, didn't I? Bless your heart. <laughs> if I was sitting there, it'd be the same problem. I'd start talking. Listen, they can't eat crabs. That's terrible there. Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, this is huge. You may have read that before and you may not have realized what Paul is doing here, but you've got to catch it. Just as, who does he mention here? I just gave you the answer. Just as, fill in the blank. Abraham. This is huge because who did he just skip over? Moses. Every time he mentions the law, who is he actually referring to? Moses. Constantly, this is a reference to Moses. And he just ignores the whole thing and says, just as Abraham. You have to understand who Moses was now. Let's get in the mindset here now, okay? Now, George Washington is not as big a deal as he ought to be to us as Americans. But he's the closest that I think we have. Moses... You have to understand who he was in Jewish history. He was the first leader. But as a leader, he was also their historian. He was it. Everything we know about Abraham, we know because of Moses. He was also their judge. Remember when his father-in-law showed up? Everybody came to Moses and Moses made every decision up until a point. He was also their prophet. Remember, when we know about Jesus coming, because Moses told the people, he said, one will come like me. This is Moses now. you got to remember this. He was their judge, his prophet. Now, he was also their administrator. Everything that was administrated. You're going to break up the land of, you're going to break up the land of Canaan. Moses is going to sit down and figure all this out. This was a busy guy. Okay. Okay, this wasn't your typical church elder. This was a busy guy. I thought that was funnier in my head than what it came out as. He was also their mediator, right? You want to know what God has to say? Moses will tell us. You go talk to a Moses. We'll stay down here. Moses. I mean, I can't imagine the schedule this guy kept. Moses. And so what does... Paul do. He says, just as Abraham. Now, who's Abraham? This is the founder of the nation, the father of the nation, 400 years before Moses gave the law. So he's saying to them, Abraham is the goal, not Moses. 
Let's try to give ourselves a timeline here so we can get our heads around it. All right, so. All right, there's our timeline. You got it now? That's it. All right, no. All right, so let's put today. That's today. And let's put old Abe back here. Okay, Abe's back here. And let's put the cross here. And here's the apostles. Okay, that's the apostles. And we'll put the Galatians here. This is somewhere around 50 A.D., okay? So it's near the end. 70 A.D. AD is here, okay? So that way you'll have that figured out. If you don't know today's date, don't worry about it. Okay. And this is the time the Mosaic... uh, Let's just put the law, okay? It's the law. And this lasted about 1,500 years, okay? And the cross, you know when that was, right? We'll go with zero. Some say 4 B.C. Okay. And then another 400 years back, well, this would be another 400 years back right there. There's Abe. That looks out of whack, but hey, you knew I wasn't an artist when I showed up. I'm barely a teacher. Okay. Now, so what we're seeing here is that Paul is saying to these folks, you're living back here. You're thinking it's all about this. The Judaizers, they have no recognition. They have no recognition of this right here. That's their problem. They don't realize the historical magnitude of this right here. They've got no concept. And by the way, the reason evangelicalism is in one of the big reasons why evangelicalism is in such a world of hurt right now. And thank God for George Washington in 1776. But this ain't the greatest day in history right here. Can I just can I rub your nose in that for a little bit? This is the greatest day in history right here. Oh my goodness, I can't get an amen on that. Huh? Do I need to do I need to do my Michael Jackson? Huh? That's the greatest day in history right here. Huh? That, I mean, if we're going to put a scale, we've got to put 1776 down here. Hallelujah. All right, just want to make sure you understand where I'm coming from. All right. So what, what, what Paul is trying to help these people see, that they've blown this out of proportion. This was the fact that the Israelites needed a disciplinarian. And they don't need this disciplinarian anymore because God Himself has shown up on the scene. And so he's saying, look, let me take you back past all of this. And let me tell you how God's, the grace of God has been working all along. All right, need oxygen. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Pretty simple, isn't it? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the age of fulfillment. The old age was passing away and would soon completely perish under God's judgment meted out through Roman tyranny and the true children of God, of Abraham, same thing, would number, watch this, according to Genesis twenty-two seventeen would number as the stars of heaven and as the sands that is on the seashore. There it is. Welcome to the age of fulfillment. The old age, ooh, we've got a purple one here. 
The old age is passing away. And it's about to come to crashing down right here. Remember, Roman tyranny, what happened in 70 A.D.? It all came crashing down, right? Can we see then, stay with me, can we see then the implications of statements made by those like John the Baptist? Think of what he said in Matthew 3, 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Think about what John was telling them. And he's done it with blockheads like me. Paul later says in Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. Before receiving the Spirit, he says this, They were, past tense, they were Gentiles. That's pretty amazing. Then that theme is expounded upon in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, again, past tense, were separated, alienated, without God. But... By the blood of Christ, He has made both, Jew and Gentile, one by abolishing the law, created in Himself one new man. No Jew, no Gentile, one new man. In Romans 2, He says this, verse 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. He wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 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 He'll put flesh in here later. Works of the works of the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. It's not about being born or who you're born to about being born again. Verse 8, And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The Word of God preached the gospel of justification by faith to Abraham, and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him by that same good news. If you're interested, you, you can read that in... Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But Jesus revealed it just as well. In John 8, 56, He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. We see that this was God's plan all along. 
And once Paul had the blinders lifted on the road to Damascus, he later wrote in Romans 8, listen to this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. You say, oh, but you're quoting the New Testament. Or don't you realize that Paul wrote this after the blinders were lifted and he began to understand the Old Testament Scriptures through the eyes of the New Covenant and he's quoting 2 Samuel 22.50. He's quoting Psalm 18.49. In verse 10, he he continues, And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32, 43. Verse 11, And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol Him. He's quoting Psalm 117, 11. Verse 12, And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, and he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope Isaiah 11, 1. Paul had previously missed all of this because his faith was in the law, not the Lord. F.B. Meyer writes, Long before Abraham had become a Jew, by the initial rite of Judaism, he had been a humble believer in God's promise. Before he became a Jew, on the basis of which he was reckoned righteous. Simple faith was the only condition that he had fulfilled. And the promise that all flesh should be blessed through him had been given when he was still a believing Gentile. Surely what had sufficed for the father of the faithful was good enough for all his children. Now the last verse, verse number 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. James reveals in verse, chapter 2, verse 23, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And we are too because of nothing but faith. And of course, it would be another four centuries as we revealed before the Mosaic law would be delivered to the mixed multitude of Israelites in the wilderness. What do we mean by mixed multitude? We're talking about the people of God being saved and unsaved under the old covenant. Saved and unsaved. They needed a disciplinarian. They needed an enforcer called the law. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the Spirit of God. We don't need that type of enforcer. The Spirit of God dwells within us. Church discipline has been brought up several times. Church discipline is based upon the assumption that God's people have the Spirit of God. Remember the definition for righteousness under the Old Covenant was based upon living under the Mosaic Law. You live under it, under the Old Covenant, you're considered righteous. You don't live under it, you're considered unrighteousness. Today, righteousness and unrighteousness is based upon being in Christ. John Riesinger writes, the gospel of grace both precedes and continues after Abraham and circumcision. 
The gospel of grace was preached and believed before, during, and after the covenant law given to Moses. There is only one gospel message, and it is salvation by grace through faith. The success of that gospel is determined by the sovereign electing grace of God, irrespective of our works or our family tree. What Paul realized is that he nearly missed this blessing because his attention was so focused on the law that he could not see the Lord. He was so wrapped up in his performance that he could not see God's provision. And what he thought was covenantal faithfulness turned out to be carnal fleshliness. In John 3, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is trying to talk to a Jewish teacher named Nicodemus. And he points him back to Numbers 21. And he says, I'm telling you earthly things and you don't get it. And now you're asking me about heavenly things. He said, do you not remember the serpents that flooded the camp of Israel and over 20,000 people were killed? He said, what did Moses do? He obeyed God and lifted up a brass serpent and told the people, if you would simply look at that brass serpent after being bitten by the poisonous vipers, just look. Just look, then you would live. That's it. Just look. Believe enough to look. The songwriter wrote, Life is offered unto you. Hallelujah. Eternal life thy soul shall have. If you'll only look to him. Hallelujah. Look to Jesus who alone can save. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. Tis recorded in his word, hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.